0: Okay, as we get started here, uh, how many of you are retired clergy? <laughs> <laughs> huh? Here comes one retired clergy, but I heard there was a bunch. Well, Jim, when I get back up here more, the first thing I'm going to do is have a lunch with all you retired clergy.
1: You Well,
0: I was thinking you would, but... <laughs> Who will negotiate? How's that? You can play me like one of those trout going for the fly. Okay, Uh, you've heard a little bit about my life. Uh, What questions do you have? But before you ask, I have something you need to know. Uh, I work for you, okay? And I work for Bill here, you know, as head of the council. The staff works for me. Do you hear me? One of the one of, conflict occurs in churches almost invariably involves the staff in larger churches, and that's what I do. Larger churches, so the staff needs to answer to me, not the money part. By that I mean I'm not signing checks. Okay, that that's separate. Do I need this? Thank you. Um. They need to answer to me. And uh, uh, Dr. Jacqueline has her own separate call and everything, but for organizational and administrative purposes, you all come to the office of the lead minister, senior minister, call it what you will. It's the only way that works. Now, what questions do you have? And they're going to run a microphone to you. Anybody? There's one back there. We'll get to you next after that. Yeah, there we go. Okay, I'm Brian Dimmitt. I am currently the co-chair of the Stewardship Committee, newly on LCC, and uh, I would like to understand how you see your role helping council and the congregation resolve our current budget deficit. You know, somehow I thought that question might come up. (laughs) You know, uh, your council... They told me before I agreed to come, they said, you know, we've got this $160,000 deficit. Yeah, I'm I'm busting you. And they said, but we got five, it's a five-month budget. What they didn't tell me is that that started January 1. (laughs) So we have, what is that, three months? Okay. Um, Okay. Here's the thing, folks. Uh, Some ministers like to keep hands off uh, back in the... In the Omaha church, I had a guy I took out for lunch every year for $65,000, and he bought lunch, Jim, <laughs> and gave the check for sixty-five grand. So I'm going to do everything I can to help you. Step number one, frankly, is to create, make the church a safe place again, uh, and to create some momentum. A lot of you are going to want to jump right into he said, she said, blah, blah, blah. And uh, that's not necessarily helpful right up front. Up front, we need to get a couple wins. We need to, like, invite a friend to Easter services and get a nice big turnout so you feel like the the engine's running again. And then you come around the back door and deal with that stuff. Creating some momentum is number one. Secondly, I'll work with you, and we have a person on staff yesterday who's a phenomenal person in fundraising, and we'll make use of her services. And I... uh, yeah, I'm, you know, I, so many names have coming at me so quickly, but uh, yes. and thank you. I wondered where you went. Uh, so that's a person who could be helpful, too, but obviously we're going to have to uh, get the money flowing again. A lot of that will have to do with the, the feelings in the church. Is there hope? Is there a sense of momentum? Is there a depression that says all is lost? Well, all ain't lost. I can tell you up front right now. And I've never been to a church before where we didn't recover and do it pretty rapidly. You know the old saying, right? You've probably used it. All the money we need is in here today. The only problem is a significant portion of it is still in your pocket. <laughs> so if I come knocking you'll know Either you're really sick or <laughs> time to loosen up that right arm. Okay, what else do we have? I think
1: our tendency is always to want to jump in and do something. Can you help us understand what, what's the other work we need to do, the inner work and the work of rebuilding fellowship?
0: Absolutely. Uh, I believe that worship is designed to set the table for the God-human event. I'm a I'm a mystical type. I like to say I I like uh, I like uh, sitting Zen from a Christian perspective. But I'm happy to sit with Buddhists. Uh, the 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 spirituality of the church is what will what will Uh, make forgiveness of one another possible look folks if you've ever been married or lived with someone in any kind of long-term relationship you know as well as I do you've said things that you wouldn't want stated here today in public right everybody's capable of being mean and ugly and I'm really good at it and I have to I've learned through therapy and CPE and uh, my spouse over the years to learn to be a little less like that. I like to say to people you can get Dr. Don or you can get Yuma Don. Yuma Don is best left, left in Yuma. <laughs> uh, so we, we, have to, we have to fill our hearts uh, and forgive one another. You know. My parents were divorced when I was eight, I'll do this real quick, and uh, my dad kind of abandoned me, and when I was 40 years old and going through the divorce that I talked about, I drove out to the Bay Area, and I was boohooing, and I said, you know, you abandoned me, and he said, well, I didn't think I did, and I realized right then, my father was never going to understand what he'd done, and I had a choice to go ahead and forgive him and have a relationship or be stuck on, you've got to realize you did wrong and doggone it, blah, blah, blah. It would have never happened. He was incapable. It wasn't me. He was a gentle man, but he was incapable of that. You know, love doesn't have to wait for forgiveness. It doesn't have to wait for repentance. Okay, we we need to move forward and love one another and recognize we're all capable of not being who God has created us to be, Uh, and we all do it every day. So just because somebody said something ugly and inappropriate to you about someone or to you, uh, that's, that's not the end of the world. It really isn't. You know, do, do you want vindication or do you want a healthy church and a happy life? And I think that's the choice that you get. Now, that's not to say that some people, you know, in South Africa, they use the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And people say, well, that's too easy. They're getting off too easy, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, I, I think uh, that character out of South Africa kind of knew what he was doing. All right. Someone else?
1: Hello. Hi. Welcome. And I just want to make a
0: comment. Sure. I just want to say thank you for coming and i like your inference about patience there
1: i'm not a very patient person myself going from transition to
0: triumph the transition part is difficult for me (laughs) but as my son-in-law would always tell me when i get anxious about things patience grasshopper just like from that (laughs) show (laughs) kung fu you know but i'm glad you're here to help us individually as people and as a church to go from our transition to our final triumph. Thank you. Yeah, Miles CPE supervisor who's a great friend, he lives in Houston today. Folks, uh, clinical pastoral education is what is ministerial boot camp where you work with a group of people who get to tell you how they feel about you all the time. So it can be very jarring to the more sensitive of spirit. But he said to me one time, he said, Don, you want to go from Christmas to Easter without benefit of Lent or Passion Week. And he was right. You know, I just, I just want to take people right out of their pain. Uh, well, it, it would be great if it worked. But sometimes you've got to go through Lent and, and, and Passion Week to get to Easter. So I'm impatient, but I've learned to be more patient because that's the way it works. I can be as impatient as I want to be, and that's not going to make you do what you don't want to do. Others? I I have uh, uh, Marianne is my spouse. Uh, She is Catholic slash not sure. She's an introvert. Uh, She's back in Texas, and will be back in Texas till our house sells. I have uh, four children, a daughter who's a kinesiologist, and and she's essentially a stay-at-home mom plus a a fitness trainer. Uh, Oldest son is the CEO of a company out of Wichita. Uh, uh, Next son is the Reverend uh, Joshua Longbottom, who also is a deep blue water sailor whom I had to send by a plane ticket from the Grand Bahama Island the day before that hurricane arrived. Because he insisted on sailing in the Bahamas during hurricane season <laughs> i 'd like to say he takes after his mom, but that wouldn 't be quite accurate <laughs> and then the fourth is uh, fourth is Jason, we lost, uh, and the fifth is Donald Joseph, who is one of the younger principals in Denver at a primarily hispanic school uh, and i 'm over I ha- I'm too proud of them. They were a pain to raise, especially the Reverend. All the hair that's missing is pretty much him. Uh, but uh, they're they're they they carry the values. They carry the values that that would allow them to fit in any UCC church. And like a lot of UCCers, they're not in church as often as they ought to be. Uh, and I have five grandchildren now, uh, and they're all good-looking and above average, Jim. <laughs> Anyone else? Yes. How about your uh, academic background? I have an a, a, a associate's degree in, in speech with honors. I have a bachelor's degree in political science from Arizona State. Uh, they had a bar there called the library, and my mom would call and say, where's Don? My newbie would say, June, he's at the library. I worked my way through college as a bartender. I have a doctorate in bartending. Uh, Is that how you a doctorate? No. <laughs> I earned it. Uh, I have a master's degree in public policy, uh, master's in public administration out of Arizona State. Um, and then I did uh, graduated with honors from Golden Gate Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in uh, Mill Valley, California, which was really pretty progressive uh, at the time. They called it Little Southern. All the professors were from Southern University in Louisville, which was an excellent institution at the time. Uh, and then uh, Jim McClendon that I alluded to in the message uh, was on the search committee of the little, only Little Baptist Church I pastored and said, you need to get into the Ph.D. program at Berkeley, uh, apply, see if you can get in. It was a joint program with Berkeley and Graduate Theological Union on the Hill there. So I I, I worked two years towards a Ph.D., uh, essentially social ethics from a Radical Reformation perspective, Uh, and Radical Reformation would be Anabaptists. Out of them came the Mennonites and some other people like that. I left the Southern Baptists and went to a Mennonite church over social justice issues. Uh, and uh, this Mennonite church was General Conference Mennonite, not Amish folks. I loved cars with with, uh, V8 engines and everything. (laughs) Uh, uh, And then when I went through that divorce in 90, I had the third largest Mennonite church in the country, Uh, but uh, they weren't down with divorce, so I had to figure out where I wanted to go, and I chose the UCC. So at any rate, uh, the Ph.D. work at Berkeley, uh, uh, I went through some depression, You know with the loss of Jason and kind of just cut that off and then I took that that work and rolled it over at Andover Newton into the into my doctorate Uh, and I guess the other piece that when I went to do uh, I've got four units of clinical pastoral education and that's an action reflection method of learning versus academic Uh, and that was a life changer for me uh, because I learned I I this this here uh, more immediately calls for that action reflection method of learning than it does for you know knowing Immanuel Kant and the categorical imperative and stuff like that so that was too a big part of my education but frankly I'm steeped in Bowenian therapy Murray Bowen and uh, that's the generation under generation the, uh, uh, the Jewish rabbi uh, Kuh, not Kushner but uh, uh, who? Friedman. Friedman. That You know, Jackie is wonderful. <laughs> but she elbowed me this morning on the way out of the office. And being a 50-year basketball player, I, I knew what happened.
1: I'm sure that um, all churches that struggle uh, have some things in common. But uh, obviously all churches that struggle are unique yes. and have their own unique history and, and, and the factors that have led them to where they are at that moment that you come into our, um, our environment. I'm curious what your understanding is about us. About what, you? Yeah, us collectively, yeah, our yeah. congregation, and what we're struggling with. What You've obviously not talked yet to all of us or even
0: most of us, but you've talked to many, and to our key leaders and other leaders yeah. in our conference and denomination. What's your understanding of what's going on with us? Well, the, you know, your understanding of something depends upon the paradigm through which you view it, and mine is bohemian But number one, the, the first answer is incomplete. I'm not, I'm not fully in your system yet. I'm coming in from the outside, which, which is ha- the way it is. All of you are inside the system. You're inside Crossland's fishbowl okay you're in the system and because of that that influences your your perception uh i'm coming in new i'm making perceptions uh those are i i, I can't t- answer that question fully now uh maybe never but i will tell you this everything that has that has been raised up for me is not there's nothing new that i've encountered with you okay Uh, When when there's anxiety in the congregation, for whatever reason, it goes two places. It goes to your governing board and it goes to your staff. Both of those were true. You're running running true to the Bohemian paradigm. Um, When when congregations get crossways of their minister, uh, uh, it's because people have set up filters. And I've lived that. Every clergy person has lived that. Uh, where somebody has decided they don't like you and you could come in Sunday morning walking on water or flying with angel's wings and they would find something wrong. Now that's not to excuse the clergy. You know, filters frequently don't come out of nowhere. But that's just a dynamic that takes place. Uh, It is what it is. I think you had some of that here. Um, The... uh, (laughs) I had a church in Darien, a Wall Street church, and they were powerful people. It was 2008. They had almost ruined the American economy, maybe the world economy, and they weren't the least bit repentant. Uh, And I went to that church, and and conflict comes on one through five. Level four uh, is where you want to win at almost any cost. Level five is where you not only want to win, you want to destroy the other person's Okay, they were like a level 4.5, edging up a little. But when I got there, they were convinced, you know, what are you going to do with us? We're so different. We're so screwed up. We're so messed up. And it, it, it hurt their egos when I said, you know what? You're not even more messed up than most of the other churches I've worked with. There ain't nothing special here. Okay, there's, you know, respectfully, you're special people. But your dynamic isn't special. It's classical. Okay, I don't know all the answers to your question yet, but I do know you're running true to form. Now you can say, "Well, you got your system, the thing you apply." So you know, if you have a hammer, you make every problem need a hammer. I'm open to that criticism, but I'm any good therapist, and I'm not a therapist, but any good therapist is eclectic, and you use what works in a given situation. And we'll figure out what needs to happen here together. We'll co-construct and we'll fix it and it's going to take a while because somebody out there is going what do we need an interim for let's just go on to another leading minister well number one I'm not an interim I don't call that and no forgive, I'm not coming to stay I promise you I won't <laughs> uh, I call it transitional work because interims. there's so much that goes into that and, people, and a lot of interim experiences are interim coming in making you like them which is not hard because they're not the person you were upset with uh and then a year or two later they go on and nothing's happened i guarantee you we'll be doing things in this church to put people in the pews and bucks in the plate and processes to to be a more healthy church um and people say well why 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 does it say this is probably going to take three years how many of you ever worked on a farm with cattle All right. I milked five cows. No, three cows. Two of them I put on calves for my uncle in the morning and in the evening. And if you look up in that pasture the the cows are coming out of, what do you see there? You see a cattle trail. That's right. They've worn, you know, you can have grass everywhere, but that's worn bare. All right. You walk out there and you run those cattle off of that bare spot. You go back in the barn. What are they going to do? They go right back that's called homeostasis, same essence, big word, uh, same status, not same essence, that's Nicaea. Uh, they go right back, the problem with consultants, for example, is they blow in, they blow up, and they blow out, and the cattle go right back three months later, so it takes a while to learn new patterns, uh, and that's really important, and I suspect, I, sus- I I'm pretty sure your patterns didn't just occur in the last two years. All right? You had a very effective pastor here. Very effective pastors are hard to get over. Okay? So you probably have some patterns that need a little work now. I don't know what they are yet, uh, but it won't take long. All right? Next. Hi. Here, I got it. Hi,
1: I'm Lois Benson. Hi. Um, I just, I don't know how much you can share with us, because you have to get to know us, but what's your initial process to find out this information?
0: I listen to everyone and believe no one. You're crossing fish in the fish tank, epistemologically, you know, the science of knowing. I'm not talking, I don't mean people come lie to me. People come and give me their perspective, all right? And it's your perspective, but it's not ontological objective reality. It's your perspective. And the best I can do is talk to whoever will talk with me, and over time I will draw some working hypotheses about how things work here so that's the answer to that it's not much of an answer but it's the best I have, I
1: have a question. yes ma'am um, you mentioned your Mennonite background and you mentioned the TRC which are both um, like seats of conflict resolution like really powerful conflict resolution and I guess I imagined when I imagined you coming I imagined that there would be a process in which the church would work toward understanding the values that we hold in common which which I understand as the essence of conflict resolution and that it would be an organic process something like the TRC where we would work toward forgiveness I, I just hope there's not like a quick move past no. conflict, I think there's something to be gained, you know, by, by honoring the experience of the people in this congregation.
0: Absolutely, and we will do that. Here's the distinction I'm making. Uh, Albin and, and Lombard, the Mennonite, I've had both the trainings. Uh, I, I just think my approach is better uh, yeah, I know. I'm, you know, I'm a humble person. <laughs> I don't teach this. I do it for a living. And you, if you want to, if you want to navigate the ship, you got to get it moving in the water. And that's the problem. Everybody, we can go into groups, and everybody can go back in the weeds, and and we'll wound each other more. Give us, give me some time, and y'all, and your help, and get this moving a little. Then we'll come back and we'll do all, th- all those things. Uh, and we'll have to talk about what that looks like to you. Uh, it may not be exactly what it looks like to me. But one of the processes I use and have used successfully is I have two friends, uh, used to be from Corn Ferry. That's the consulting gold standard out of New York. And they work for me pro bono. All we have to do is fly them in, feed them, and put them, put them in a place to sleep. One is, is uh, Jack McVale, uh, who... Still a member of Riverside, I think, but he lives in Portland, and then a, a Jewish woman, Elizabeth Resnick, who who is the president of her synagogue. And we and they they adopted my process, which is a three fold process. Number one, congregation gets together on an event day and we talk about who we've been, History Day. Uh pastor church in Darien, where fifty of the parishioners were carted off to Prison in Long Island during the Revolution, along with the American Revolution, Uh, that's the Eastern churches, and along with the founding pastor, they were turned in by Tories within the congregation, and they wondered why they had conflict. (laughs) They had a history of conflict. Uh, So number one is History Day. Who have we been? Because the beauty of it is, then you start to tease out some of those patterns and you're very likely to see. you know what, we've been here before. Then the second session, uh, sometime later, is now who do we want to be? And during that session, and this goes to uh, the new leadership paradigm that came out of quantum physics and stuff, chaos, uh, self-ordering, the staff and the clergy and the former clergy all have to be still because we've all had our chance to lay our imprint on this congregation. And the question is, who do we want to be going forward? And that's the most powerful harmonizing uh, technique that I've ever experienced. And then coming out of that, we select a couple people to and maybe refashion an existing statement or create a new one, uh, you know, a mission statement, but it's liturgically written so that it's in every service. It drives down that way. I don't care how many long-term planning things you do, Uh, Most of them get put on the shelf and gather dust. And then the third day, you've got history day, mission day, uh, mission statement, call it whatever you want. Then the third one is pathways day. How do we get there? And then the staff and everybody comes flooding back in and we talk about how, how to make those things a reality. And then you can come back to that with every annual meeting and say, how have we done? A big mistake that congregations make is they go looking for a pastor to bring them a vision. That's, that's like going to the market not knowing what you want. Uh, or b- better yet, going to the car store not knowing what you want. Uh, it, my bias is congregations need to decide who they want to be and go find the person to help them be that. Not have somebody come in and say, show us where we need to go. Because inevitably, that's not going to be where a lot of you want to go. But if you've done the work... The the prospective candidates can say, well, I want to be a part of that. You know, I think a big one here is social justice. Uh, another one is spirituality. Uh, not everybody who wants one of those wants the other. You need to find that person. I'm guessing that that is has some passion about both. So, you're welcome. Yes, sir. Well, you kind of answered my question, which is
1: really good, because I was, I was thinking, how do, you, how do you get people to focus on what can be instead of what was, and how do we get back there? Because there's no reason going back. There's a reason we're here now, and so how do we go forward? And you really kind of handled that well. And I really wanted to say I appreciate your ideas on momentum. And to that end, I really appreciated a first sermon that didn't say, this is a broken place, you're broken people, <laughs> and how do you move on? So I just want to say like, I feel like that momentum can start very quickly with this group. And, a
0: little closer speak. to your face. All right, I'm a big
1: guy, so I'm going with comb. that. Ice uh, cream cone. Ice cream cone, good idea. Hey, well, I just we're wanted not to say... We're hearing this. Can you repeat some of the if parts I of the question, it. and then the address the answer? I will, I will
0: try. Go ahead.
1: Thank you. Well, I guess uh, you'd answered my basic question, how do we focus on being what we're going to be instead of being revisionist and trying to recreate what we had? And uh, you kind of handled that very well. And I just wanted to say that I appreciated that his first sermon was really forward-looking and more about what's going to be instead of this is a broken place, these are broken people. And it was just nice to hear something else to get started because I feel like that momentum piece is important to me. So I want to feel like I want to be here every day. And so I just want to say thanks for that.
0: Did you hear that? He's talking about he appreciates the fact that I didn't come here and tell you how broke you are. That, that, that we're looking forward.
1: Broke, too. Broken:
0: <laughs> Well, we may all be broke based on last week's stock market. OK? But I'm guessing we're not all broke, But we're all broken. You know, We, 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 we all have cracks in our facade. You know, I like Leonard Cohen. He taught, and other people do this too. The cracks are where the light shines through. What I'd like to do, oh, by the way, thank you for the uh, Christian Formation people who made room for this today. Uh, I know I stepped on their agenda, but it's really important to have this time. Uh, And Jackie, keep. how are we doing on time? Well, we have another service coming. Okay, I don't want to go beyond a quarter of 11 because I need 15 minutes to gather myself. Uh, So, next. Anyone? Oh, I know what I wanted to tell you. I love Leonard Cohen's music. And what I'd like, I just think he's deeply theological. He has a quintessential Jewish attitude towards God, like, why did you do this? And I have some of that too, having buried a child. Uh, I want to do a six week study of, of some of his songs which are really poet, sung poetry uh, uh, with grounded biblically because I think this is a guy who was really impressed with Christ early on found a, an inherent impasse between his Judaism and Christianity and then he went Buddhist and I, I, I think he's in many ways a wonderful theologian uh, aside from I love his music. And and I know this being a UCC church, I could teach I could teach a Bible study in Matthew and 6 of you would show up. And I could and I could teach a a Native American spirituality class and 70 of you would show up. And it's not like you already know the Bible because you're not former Baptist. I know you. <laughs> Anyone else? Oh, over here. Um,
1: I was wondering who you thought I should vote for at Super Tuesday.
0: (laughs) Um, Who you should vote for on Tuesday? It's a tough one. You know, Bill Clinton had a... Pre- she wants to know who I think she should vote for on Tuesday. Bill Clinton had a good line. He didn't listen to it, but he had a good line when he said, some things need a good letting alone. He should have let Monica alone. And I'll leave that one alone. But I'll tell you, I'll give you, a, I, I'll tell you what I do. I preach values. And I assume you're smart enough to apply them. And I think you are. There are fundamental core Christian values, and I have pastored Democrats, and I the, the the church in Omaha was more Republicans than Democrats, and I found uh, you know um, I the Republicans there, and I, I they had wonderful values. We might disagree about methodology at some points. But I didn't see I didn't see any major disagreement about fundamental values. You know, while I was there, we hired the first openly gay staff member. You know, this was quite a while ago, but uh, and the church was known as the Country Club before I got there, and we plowed some new ground. Uh, And it was good. In, In the end, I was the bug on the windshield, but you know, every year. While I was there, we would take out two to three hundred people on a Sunday on the walk of, uh, against racism, bigotry, and bias. And the pastor who came there after me, Eric Ellness, I left when it was time for me to leave. I'd worn out my welcome with some powerful people. And it was going to hurt the church for me to stay. So I left, and I left professionally. When people came to me and said, well, I'm, you know, if you're not going to be there, I'm leaving. And I said, no, you're not. not you think you joined me? You joined the church and you need to stay here and be the church and they did and Eric led that church from racism bigotry and bias stuff to uh, Tri faith initiative where they sold the property and bought joint property with the Jewish folks and the Islamic folks and they share space and everything in Omaha uh, so that's what happens I think when you do it right sometimes you're going to sow the seed and not be around to see it uh, uh, blossom and that's it's part of the job. You know, uh, uh, Heifetz out of Harvard did this uh, work on leadership, and he talked about adaptive leadership and technical leadership. Technical change in leadership is when you hire a new person and think that's going to solve the problems, or you add a position to the church and think that's going to solve the problems. Adaptive leadership is when is fundamental cultural change in an organization. That's what gets you into trouble. Well, one of the big, there are other ways to get into trouble, but, but, but leadership is about adaptive change, it's not about technical change. It's, and so when I preach, I'm not interested in telling you how to vote, who to vote for, but I am, I, I am interested in presenting the gospel according to Jesus, which uh, in, will make you radical in some way. It's quite subversive. Uh, You know Jim Wallace from Sojourners magazine. You won't find a more radical publication. That publication, I read that publication in 1983, and I was so convicted. I went to Nicaragua as part of the Witness for Peace, the Human Shield, down there against the Contras, because I thought what we were doing was wrong. But that guy, he's not a progressive, not in the classic sense. He he's a biblical kind of a biblical conservative, but he takes Jesus so seriously that he ends up on the cutting edge of social change. So you can get there a lot of ways.
1: I actually had a
0: question. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Uh, <laughs> what is your actual question?
1: My, my actual question is that um, there's a lot of sense of urgency at the church right now, especially yep. around money. Yep. So you're going to like go away for a month, and you have a three-year-long process. So what... What would you say to us about the urgency we feel?
0: Uh, She wants to know about the urgency with money and the fact that I'm going away. Uh, I'm going to be back full time April 1, which is not very far away. But I will tell you, I've been already working for you for two weeks. I haven't been getting paid for it, which is fine. Uh, And that's okay. I I really mean that. But, But just because I'm not here physically... Doesn't mean I mean it's a new world. I mean I, I carry an office in my in my man bag, uh, but we're we're getting after it. I mean you could start today. All of you could write a check and add a zero to it. Right? I mean it's uh, honestly. I I don't think this is a poor church. Uh, I don't think it had three billionaires in it like the church in Omaha, but or or in Darianne where. Those unrepentant sinners still wanted to run the economy. Uh, You know, I told them one night at a meeting, uh, and it was all guys on the trustee board. I I got tired of hearing them, you know, ego talk with one another. I finally said to them, guys, I know more about church than you do, so you need to listen to me. And it finally got through to them. I mean, I, it was my favorite all-time church. I'm a Westerner. I did not think I would like these Easterners. And I loved them. You know, the, the intellectual horsepower in that church was awe-inspiring. Of course, some of those really smart people didn't believe in a progressive tax system. You know, they, they thought every, every dime they made should pretty much stay in their pocket. But they were good people, and we worked it out. And, and the church really came around. And, uh, you know, there's not going to be any grass growing under my feet. Uh, but if I just walk in and start telling you what to do, it won't work. It's like my old therapist uh, when I did the year at the psych place. At the end of the year, I said to him, well, give, you know, give me, tell me what you think now. And he did. And I said, well, why didn't you do that nine months ago? Why did I spend all this time and money talking with you? And he said, and he was an old Germanic guy, he said, well, doctor, well, Don, he said, that's because the only real discovery is self-discovery. And there's some stuff you're going to have to discover for yourself. But I, I think the money will start coming in. Uh, when, when I went to the church in Phoenix, uh, it, everything changed when I did this piece because they realized there was somebody there who could ride the horse. It had become an unsafe place. People were eating each other for lunch. There was blood splattered on the walls. And they needed to know there was someone there who could set some boundaries. And say, we're not going to do that. And, and make it stick. Now, you know, obviously I can't handcuff you. But it has to be a safe place. It has to be a safe place for staff. And because anxiety goes to the staff, I told the staff yesterday, it's my job to have your back, and I will. On the other hand, they have to practice confidentiality. And when we discuss, it needs to be where I know it's not going to come leaking out here and be misinterpreted. Uh, And all that stuff will make it a safe place, and a safe place will start to hum, and uh, we're going to work together on how to do fundraising but nothing will work unless hearts start getting changed. Okay, people vote with their pocketbooks and they vote with their fannies. They, they, if they're, they're not in the pew and they're not giving. Okay, that's how people vote. Uh, when they start coming back and start opening up their checkbooks, it's going to be because they feel better about the place. And there's no substitute for that. There's no technique by which to Make all those problems go away. It's work. Interior work. Yes? I'm sorry.
1: Go ahead, Wayne.
0: That's not on. Speak up. Let's get it on. No. Okay. There it Whoa. is. <clears throat> so other than doing the incredible work to uh, bring this church back to a magical existence in this community and the world, what do you like to do for fun? What refuels you? I walk five miles a day, and I weight lift three times a week. Uh, I used to play basketball. Played basketball for fifty years till into my sixtieth year. Um, That's my favorite thing. But I just I'm bone on bone in my knees and my hips are not far behind. Uh, But I walk the five miles. Uh, I uh, I track the stock market as a hobby. I invest in Apple. (laughs) Uh, I don't golf. I don't have a boat. Uh, I'm not going to take up rock climbing. Uh, But uh, uh, I, I don't do a lot of things, but I do the things I do with real regularity. And trust me, I ha- anybody have a visala, a Hungarian pointer? Well, you'll know that three of them are a full-time job. They can run on all four walls of a house and not touch the floor. So it, it's a beautiful thing because they, uh, it's not an issue of, will you take them walking? They asked me what my hobby was. Number one hobby are my dogs. I have one old one and two younger ones. I used to be a bird hunter. Uh, I, don't, I don't really like to kill things anymore. I've evolved. But I, but I love the dogs. I might put a fish hook in a fish's mouth, Jim. But I, but I like the odds in my favor. I'm not, I'm not sure I could ever catch up with those trout on that stuff, but I could sucker them into a worm.
1: <laughs> yes? This is, uh, I love the optimism, and this is not to play devil's advocate with it or to suggest a self-fulfilling prophecy or to criticize you. Um, but I'm curious, could you reflect of the various churches that you've been involved in where things didn't work out? the way you would have liked them what did you how did you respond and what did you learn from that
0: I'm not the, suggesting it isn't going to work out
1: well here. No, I just,
0: no but, hey listen trust me that's a fair question he wants to know about my failures <laughs> the first church I did interim work with was Pilgrim Church in Cleveland it was about 55% LGBTQ I had all the theories and stuff, but it was my first, first predominantly LGBTQ church. Uh, that really wasn't the problem. It was interesting. Some of the gay guys said the first Sunday after I'm there, could you have gotten anybody straighter? <laughs> and, and, and one of the guys, when I went to preach, came up the aisle with a pink boa and hung it on me. They were, they were testing me. And then most of the Cleveland Theater District went to that church. And Pride Parade was coming up. And they said, we're going to put you in a thing and you're going to run all the way back to Yuma. We're, we're designing a special costume for you. And I thought, you don't know me. You could put me in hot pants and I'll be in that parade. Now, I wouldn't want to see me in hot pants, but <laughs> I wouldn't be the one that'd have to see that sight. So what they did, I had a lesbian associate, They dressed me up like Captain Stewie, and her like the instant, and we had a float like the love boat, and we won an award. (laughs) But that church had been turned around uh, by a woman who later went to Coral Gables. She spent 16 years, it had been a, a really important church that was down to about 25 people. Over 16 years, she'd run it up to 300 average attendance, and she'd done it. Uh, with the pastoral model, which is a small church model, where she was everything to everyone, she would put herself in the hospital every year from exhaustion. Well, in Boenian sense, she overfunctioned, and she's wonderful, and I'm a fan of hers. But that was a bit problematic. So when I got to that church, uh, I was dealing with people who refused to their prior minister. When she, her installation happened in Florida, more of them flew down from that church than showed up from the Florida congregation and uh, I did my thing there and I left and they ate the next minister for lunch okay Uh, the hardest and I don't do this job anymore the hardest interim job there is is to follow a highly successful over functioning minister because it's it's it almost takes a a bloodletting to get over them Uh, sometimes they can bring in the person you know like broadbent is that his name came in uh following uh, being on staff with it, and it worked more times than not it doesn't work uh and that's the hardest interim uh transitional thing there is and and i didn't do that well i mean they liked me i had a great time with them but the poor person who came in was an unintentional interim so i've had my failures but i haven't had any failures with highly conflicted churches Apparently, I'm good in conflict. (laughs) I will tell you, I'm good at creating it. So I had to learn to deal with it. And I think one of the things that works is I'm not afraid of confrontation. And I don't mean violent. Well, on basketball, it could be violent. But I used to play basketball with these guys from the med school. And they go, hi, Reverend Don. It's good to meet you. And I said, well, boys, you need to remember this. And they said, what's that? I said, Jesus loves you, but I'll hurt you. <laughs> and they said, what do you mean? I said, shoot that three-point, but don't come in that paint, because I'm there for you. <laughs> but, you know, you've got to be willing, not to be mean to people, but I have a rule of thumb. The healthy church is the self-regulating church. And what I mean by that is, Let's say uh, somebody comes to you and says, You know, the pastor, he doesn't work very hard. And you know that's not true. If you go, if you don't address that, you're harming the church. Do you hear me? Clergy can't defend themselves. Church members have to defend their clergy. Now, if they're not defensible, that's a different story, but. But if somebody comes to you and, and says something ugly about a staff person and you know that's not true, you need to say, you know what, that's not true. But if you think it's true, you need to go talk to him or her. Uh, one of the things I don't do, you won't get a lot of, of uh, go along with me if you come to me and say, they're saying. Or I know several people who feel like I do and I'm going to say, we'll bring them in we'll talk to all of them at the same time. Because all otherwise you're going to do is limit my sleeping hours and raise my blood pressure. Because I can't do a thing about the unnamed they. And another rule of thumb is, if the only way to stop manipulation is to get all the players around the same table at the same time. You know, and one of the beauties of this process that I like, who have we been, who do we want to be, how do we get there? Is that you have all the congregation you can get there. So you're hearing from Everybody. And nobody comes representing other people. If you don't come, that's your choice. We're going to dance with the ones that show up. And so you have your chance to build a plan for the future from scratch. It's not coming from the council. It's not coming from me. It's coming from you. And people get motivated by their own ideas. We'll go. Okay. Um, As a basketball coach, thank you. We loved your your statement just a minute ago. Coach of soccer, coach basketball. Um, One of the things that has come up, and I know my wife and my family have talked about, um, especially as we've had friends come and join us, like for our daughter's baptism and things at this church. If you look in the pews, I know tons of you are great, loving individuals, but if you look around, our church lacks a lot of diversity and inclusion and are there any plans or thoughts towards that we can invite people all day long but when they come and they see as friendly as you all are because no one in this church has been anything but amazing to us it doesn't reflect the community that
1: you walk outside and see
0: yeah there's no easy answer to that Uh, just talking about how the church doesn't reflect the outside community uh no, it doesn't. I walked five miles up and down. Well, three miles yesterday up and down the street. No, it was amazingly young. Uh, that's something we have to work on. I don't. I don't have uh, an instant. Three. Three things I think grow churches. One is invitation. You got to be inviting people. You don't have to get them here. You have to invite them. Second is assimilation. That's the hard part for the UCC. You've got to get up, make them feel welcome. Take them out to lunch. Get involved in their life a little bit. And the third is then put them to life-changing mission work. Now that's, that's my formula for church growth. And I've grown churches that way. Uh, but it's, it, the, um, the congregation needs to be fully invested in it. Uh, but as to how to take a predominantly uh, Caucasian church and make it more diverse... Um, that's a complex question that I can't give you an easy answer to uh, because I'd be blowing smoke in your direction and I don't want to do that. What time is it? Huh? Uh, Can we start winding this up? Uh, It is...
1: It is 10.30, so all of my lovely choir members sitting in the pews, we are warming up downstairs in the music room two minutes ago. So I will see you there.
0: Isn't he polite? <laughs> yeah. Do you have a question?
1: Dr. Don, my name is John Stefanik. And uh, yes, John. I've heard uh, a lot of your talk. It's, it's very inspirational. Um, we're about to go down and teach godly play. To our three, four, five, six year olds. And I look around the congregation and I say, There's not too many here, although I see some up against the wall. And then I know uh, Gussie's going to be there this morning too. But uh, about a year ago, I had 10 or 12 in that class, and now I have two. Could you address the, the youth of the church, please?
0: Youth, you need to invite all your friends to come to church. Okay? Uh, Brother, that's. You're in the boat with. We are in the boat with most mainline churches. Okay? Uh, Have a hard time attracting and retaining young people. I assume you lost some due to the conflict that existed in the church. Now's the time to reach out to them and and say, come back. You know, uh, things are going to be different. Uh, But as far as attracting new ones, we have to sit down and figure out the strategies for that. I don't know what's going on in this community. Uh, There's ways to do it, but I don't don't have them in my ready-made kit. So I'm not really giving you a great answer because I don't have one. And if I had one, I could write a book, but I'd still want to work. Yeah, well, I will do my part to welcome them. The more important part, though, honestly, is the sense of welcome from the congregation. Uh, uh, I can... I mean, that just is the way it is. I mean, there's no substitute for that. But thank you. Anyone else? Yes. Nope.
1: Hello? Yeah, now it's on. Thank you. Um, thank you for being here and for... You know, taking on this role. Um, my question for you you mentioned self discovery and self reflection. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you are aware of your privileges as a male, as a white male, and, you know, maybe have had self discovery and self reflection around that idea?
0: I am, uh, she's raising the question about white male privilege. White male privilege is real. Um, I have it. You know, nobody follows me around the store to see if I'm shoplifting and that kind of thing. But I will tell you what a good uh, there's a young woman, her name is Susan Drake. You could look her up and call her. She came to my church in, in Manhattan, Kansas back in uh, early 90s. She was a Southern Baptist lesbian and she'd come out and they had butchered her. So she started attending our church. I didn't know who she was. And about Two months later, she came into my office and said, Hey, uh, my name is Susan Drake, and here's my story. And she said, I've been waiting to be offended, and you haven't offended me yet, so I want to talk to you. I want to know about joining the church. Susan joins the church. A year later, she comes into my office and says, Hey, I feel called to the ministry. And I said, Great. We sent her off to uh, Eden on a full presidential ride scholarship. Talking to Susan last summer at the And we were talking about white male privilege, and she said, yeah, you have white male privilege, and you used it for me. So I have a couple thoughts about white male privilege. I have another lesbian associate, uh, Andrea, who works at Cathedral of Hope, which is now, she worked for me in Phoenix, the largest LGBTQ church in the world. She came to me as an intern, and when I left, she was the acting senior minister. But Andrea and I argued long and hard about the white male privilege thing because I, I learned through dialogue. And Andrea went to Smith. You know what Smith is? Okay. I'm going towards what's called intersectionality here. I didn't go to Smith. I went to the Harvard of the West, Arizona Western Junior College. <laughs> I spent my summers picking cantaloupes for a buck and a quarter an hour beside the Mexican folks that were brought over. And what I want to say is I buy totally into white male privilege. Uh, it's, it's real. But we also need to sharpen up the term because I never imagined I could go to Harvard, the real Harvard, because I ain't nothing but an educated hillbilly. So my concern is this. With labels, they get weaponized. And I know other conference ministers, and we have a lot of diversity among conference ministers but a lot of the white, straight males are afraid to say anything because of white male privilege. And I have a problem with that because my position is nobody takes my voice. Okay, I'm willing to be taught about my privilege and have been. I'm willing to be called down, but I'm not willing to shut up. So, And nor will I am willing to have you or anyone else I believe in dialogue. I I believe in the the, the liberation theologians had a concept called the hermeneutical circle. The interpretation of scripture is not done by the priest. It's not done by Don Longbottom. I may have a piece in the conversation, but that conversation is a conversation of the church. And also in dialogue with the trans-historical realities of the faith, the traditions and stuff. And so it's not just one person's voice, and it shouldn't be just white people's voice. Okay, I'm going to call this to a halt because I need to relax a little bit before the next service. Thank you, folks. God bless you.